to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Friday, October 22nd, and it will begin airing on Sunday, October 24th, 2021. My name is Reese Robinson. I'm on air today with my co-host Jasmine Smith and Emily Scott. Ladies, how are you feeling on this Mm -hmm. fine Friday morning? Happy Friday, everybody. We haven't recorded on a Friday that I can remember. Um, yeah, feels good to be closer. Yeah, to be closer to the air date. Yeah, it's still, uh, it's like a, another lovely summer day in New York. <laughs> deep, deep into fall. So right. it's like good and bad in a way, mm-hmm. you know. Spooky and not in a fun way. Right. Um, Ominous. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Tis the season, right? Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm just happy that the sun is shining. Okay. Let's just take the small wins. <laughs> Those work for me today. Um, so on today's episode, we are going to be talking about New York City's Board of Health declaring racism a public health crisis, a cinematographer being killed by a prop gun on a movie set, an adjustment to gun licensing laws over in Britain, and we have some good news about some countries coming together to pledge to cut methane emissions. So we're going to go ahead and kick off today's episode with our local news segment. Emmy, Emily, take it away. <laughs> Call me Emmy. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay. Yeah, people do. Anyway, <clears throat> this story comes from an October 19th New York Times article by Karen Zrake titled Racism is Declared a Public Health Crisis in New York City. The article explains, quote, the New York City Board of Health declared racism a public health crisis on Monday, passing a resolution that directed the health department to take steps to ensure a racially just recovery from the coronavirus pandemic. The resolution called on the department to work with other agencies to root out systemic racism within policies, plans, and budgets on a wide range of matters that affect health, including land use, transportation, and education. It also directed the department to improve data collection practices and examine both the health code and its own history for structural bias. Quote, the resolution builds on a statement the department released in June 2020 amid widespread protests after the killing of George Floyd by a police officer in Minneapolis. The statement vowed to address racism as a social determinant of health as part of our mission to protect the health of New Yorkers. Dr. Dave A. Chokshi, the commissioner of the health department, is quoted as saying, why do some non-white populations develop severe disease and die from COVID at higher rates than whites, he said. Underlying conditions undoubtedly play a role, but why are there higher rates of hypertension, diabetes, and obesity in communities of color? The answer does not lie in biology. Structural and and environmental factors such as disinvestment, discrimination, and disinformation underlie a greater burden of these diseases in communities of color. Also, quote, the COVID-19 pandemic must render unacceptable that which has been condoned for generations. The article gives some background on the Department of Health, explaining that it's, quote, one of the largest public health agencies in the world and one of the oldest in the country. The members of its board, who are appointed by the mayor with the consent of the city council, serve without pay and oversee the health code. While the American Public Health Association database indicates that 200 similar declarations have been made across the country, quote, the New York Health Department said its resolution was one of the first that was tied to specific directives. 
yeah, so I thought this was super interesting. Uh, I remember last summer when in the midst of the pandemic, all the pro- the giant protests uh, around George Floyd and uh, racism and police police killings were happening. And there was that conversation starting of, um, you know, we're in the middle of two pandemics right now, like one that's racially based and one that's COVID-19, which was definitely a really interesting, I think, uh, idea, right. That like diseases aren't necessarily just germ based. Uh, And I thought that the fact that the health department has pushed it to this level was really interesting. Uh, it's also good to hear that they're trying to tie it to like specific actions and not just leaving it as like, you know, one of those pat on patting themselves on the back sort of things where it's like, okay, now that we've declared it, we can move on to the next thing, you know? Yeah. I think that, that declaring racism as a public health crisis is long overdue. Okay. Uh, way long overdue. And I think that these larger entities using this language and making this a greater conversation is a step in the right direction. We all know this is very clear, like without explanation, but when it comes down to us really examining the problems that exist in our society, racism is at the very basis. It's at the stem of so many other things. And when we start to talk about the injustices, whether they're environmental, police brutality, uh, discrimination, lack of resources, everything comes right back down to this route. So definitely uh, not surprising, but a step in the right direction. Yeah, and I I like that um, they're making it clear that it's racism, it's not someone's race, because there's a way that I feel, especially with the pandemic, um, it's not necessarily intentional, but I think it's just a way that people will try to shorten the idea. Like they'll say, well, if you're, for example, if you're black or if you're Latino, then that means you're at higher risk for X, Y, and Z. And if you're not really paying attention, it can give the impression that there is some kind of like genetic predisposition that you have, or like there's something mm-hmm. about um, like your there's something about you being black on its own that means you're more likely to have like certain conditions as opposed to it is the way that society will treat you and the way the society is stacked against you if you are a non-white person that leads to like these higher prevalences of these other issues like last week we just talked about the community in south benton with the lead poisoning you know, and all the things that that leads to, you know, like if you're often stressed out because of the type of work that you do, or you're worried about the police harassing you, like that has an impact on your health. So yeah, I like that um, they're making it clear, like it's not like the person or like some kind of cultural thing or like decisions that you're making because of your race or something. It's about structural systemic issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if we did this story on the show or not, but the New York Times within the last few years did a whole expose about um, black women and and really severe outcomes with pregnancy and birth that are uh, so related to environmental issues and are and not even like education, income level. None yeah. of that mattered. None of it mattered. All that mattered was that they were a person of color. And that the shit they face on a day-to-day basis just puts so much stress on their bodies. Yeah, and I think the woman who did that study originally, she called it weathering. 
it's just over a lifetime of dealing with so many structural barriers, it ages you or like it does things to your body physically that you can't make up for. But like, even if you control for class and stuff like you were saying in education, it still doesn't close that gap. So yeah, it's, um, let's hope that it actually turns into actual action, you know, because even with the pandemic, like there, there's been a lot of, um, hospitals and things that have been understaffed or shut down like over the years like under Cuomo and now you see like when you have a major health emergency like those same areas that are the hardest hit don't have the same number of resources as other areas. Absolutely and it's sad that it took a whole fucking pandemic for us to really look at this as a whole as a people and I'm not when I say us, I'm talking about the US um, and the other shit, the other parts of the world, too, because obviously a lot of things were brought to the surface because of that standstill moment in time um, when we all had to be dependent on each other. And we still do. But I definitely think that this is long overdue, as I said before. And hopefully with this, you know, I, I want to pose a question to you, ladies, with this, like coming to surface, what do you guys think would be the next best move? Right. The next best move after this is declared Mm -hmm. a public health crisis. Any any ideas on that? That's such a good question, Teresa. Because I I often we we talk about these stories and sometimes to me, it just seems like, you know, what what would be the solution? Like, what is the next thing to do about that? I think that's it's such a. I mean, when when it's something is so systemic, like racism, right, it's almost like picking one thing feels there is this just so deeply embedded enough right (laughs) I know yeah Yeah. I would think that you know if you have to pick one thing it's like multiple like for every issue that you look at you have to include race in the way that you tackle it so like if you're talking about like education if you're talking about infrastructure if you're talking about um, resources for hospitals and things like that, um, if you're talking about police, you know, jails, whatever the issue is, you have to include race in the equation. Like you cannot at any point treat it like it's a race neutral or it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter because it absolutely does. So I I would think like, you know, it's kind of a trick question because it isn't just one thing, but it's like race is the thing, Yeah, you know, like this country is based on and was built on like racist violence and, or like racial segregation and treating people differently based on their color and their ethnicity. So you can't have it be an ingredient in everything, but then whenever you're talking about an issue, it's conveniently left out because it all is connected. Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, uh, real fast off of that, Jasmine, my only, not my concern, but I, you know, history is cyclical, right? So I think in many ways, like affirmative action, for example, like when that was initiated, that was the idea, right? Is that race should be taken into account because it's involved. But now we have all these groups who it's like, you know, trying to like flip the meaning of all of that on its head and ignore, you know, the actual root causes of so many issues. So I think not like that's a a concern, but I think, I mean, it is a concern. I think the way that history is cyclical and that there's action and then reactionary people, um, you know, that I think my concern is like 20 years from now, uh, how do we keep 
people from trying to turn this into like a quote reverse racism, you know, sort of thing. I don't, I don't have an answer for that, but I didn't expect, I, I didn't really expect anybody to have like a one, one word answer. I do like, that Oh yeah, thought, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I do like that. We, we, what you said, Jasmine about, you know, it's not a one ingredient thing. Um, each, each situation and condition deserves, um, a real set down, well thought out discussion. I think it's important to include the people in who are subject to racism, which is, you know, all people of color, but within the solution, right? Not, I think a lot of times it's been this whole sort of blanket, like, oh, let's provide more social services or let's, you know, put more, give more opportunities for kids to be bused and free school lunch and all of these like random like tokens of, I see you, but I don't. Um, I think that when we really start to dive into finding solutions for these issues, they're not also the same solutions that were okay for our parents or even anybody five years ago. Like the shit has really changed. So we can't use old practice to solve um, longstanding problems right now. Yeah. And like what I was saying, um, cause like the thing you're talking about, Emily, like with affirmative action or something, I'm not talking about like quotas or like mm-hmm. token type things. I'm saying like you cannot like you cannot ignore like dispropor- things that disproportionately affect like people based on certain races like you have to consider that like it has to be part of the overall way that you approach a problem you have to include mm-hmm. like how is this affecting some groups more than others because when you have like a quota type system I don't believe that that's really a solution because it isn't really addressing the root issue you know it's like Mm -hmm. you know like that's not gonna fix anything and like unfortunately as long as we I don't know I guess I'm the resident like pessimist on this show like I feel like as long as you know this country continues as it is there are always going to be reactionary forces and the thing Mm -hmm. about racism is it changes you know even in the ways like people who were considered one race at one point in history they are now considered something else in Mm -hmm. order to maintain like the best so it's just mm-hmm. something that you can't ever think that it's going to be solved and you can move on. Like it has to evolve, like the way you look at it, the way that you try to approach like tackling these issues. Cause you know, racism is going to continue to change. So like the way you try to address it has to also be flexible. I think that's great. And historically, just to kind of tie up this segment historically, you know, we, it, it was representation, right? Representation was a big thing. I know with our parents, oh, we finally got, you know, more people of color on this board and more people of color in public office and all of these, you know, leadership positions, sort of speak. But they're not the ones making decisions for the people who need them the most. And if they are, it's just not trickling down. So, yeah, it's like we definitely yeah, we definitely see because like it's been generations of like, okay, this was the mainstream approach. And then what has been the fruit of that? Like what worked and what didn't work? or what backfired, you know, and like go back to the drawing board and like take the good parts of it and continue. But like some of it has to be thrown out. Like the idea of like, well, if you have people of XYZ identity and they're doing XYZ job, that does not automatically mean that they give a damn about everyone who belongs to those groups or that they're going to act in their best interest. But maybe 50, 60 years ago, it was such a breakthrough thing that people weren't like really thinking that way. Good discussion, ladies. Definitely um, 
something for our listeners to consider. What do you think will be the next best move in a situation like that? What would you do if you can influence um, how we move forward from this point? Um, All right, let's go ahead and hop into our first music break of the day. Um, This is a really cool band. I just discovered them. They actually uh, did a track that you all may really know called Remind Me, but they are called the, sorry, I just lost it. They are Jazz Collective and they are called Butcher Brown and the track is called title the track is titled Camden Square. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
Uh, Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And now for our national news segment, Jasmine, you're up. Okay, so this is a story. um, This article was written by Chris Lindahl for IndieWire. And the title is Prop Gun Fired by Alec Baldwin Contained Live Bullet says IATSE Local 44. Cinematographer Helena Hutchins was killed on the New Mexico set of the Alec Baldwin film Rust after she was shot by a prop gun fired by the film's star and producer Alec Baldwin. IATSE Local 44, which covers prop masters, sent an email to its members early Friday morning that said the gun used in the scene contained a live round and the production's prop master was not a member of Local 44. Director Joel Souza also was hit and injured by a bullet and was treated at an area hospital before being released. Um, And just a note that IATSE stands for International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. Um, So that's the full name of the union. Sheriff's deputies were dispatched to Bonanza Creek Ranch, a popular filming location south of Santa Fe, Thursday afternoon in response to a 911 caller reporting a shooting on set. No charges have been filed and the incident remains under investigation. The sheriff's office confirms that two individuals were shot on the set of Rust, Helena Hutchins, 42, director of photography, and Joel Souza, 48, director were shot when a prop firearm was discharged by Alec Baldwin, 68, producer and actor, reads a statement from the sheriff's department. Ms. Hutchins was transported via helicopter to University of New Mexico Hospital, where she was pronounced dead by medical personnel. Mr. Souza was transported by ambulance to Christus St. Vincent Regional Medical Center, where he is undergoing treatment for his injuries. The investigation remains open and active, No charges have been filed in regard to this incident. Witnesses continue to be interviewed by detectives. Mr. Baldwin was questioned by investigators and released, a Santa Fe Sheriff's Department official told Deadline. No arrests or charges have been filed. Santa Fe County Sheriff's Office spokesman Juan Rios told the New York Times that the incident happened in the middle of a scene that was being rehearsed or filmed. We're trying to determine right now how and what type of projectile was used in the firearm, he said. In the email that IATSE Local 44 sent to its membership, Secretary Treasurer Anthony Pollock described the event as an accidental weapons discharge in which a live single round was accidentally fired on set by the principal actor, hitting both the director of photography, local 600 member Helena Hutchins, and director Joel Sousa. Local 44 has confirmed that the props, set decoration, special effects, and construction departments were staffed by New Mexico crew members. There were no local 44 members on the call sheet. 
The International Cinematographers Guild released the following statement Thursday night. We received the devastating news this evening that one of our members, Helena Hutchins, the director of photography on a production called Rust in New Mexico, died from injuries sustained on the set. The details are unclear at this moment, but we are working to learn more and we support a full investigation into this tragic event. This is a terrible loss and we mourn the passing of a member of our guild's family. Hutchins, who was based in Los Angeles, graduated from AFI in 2015. She was named one of American Cinematographer's Rising Stars of 2019. She previously worked as an investigative journalist on documentaries in Europe, according to her website. The Ukraine native's credits include Pollyanna McIntosh's film, horror film, Darling, which premiered at South by Southwest in 2019, Adam Egypt Mortimer's Arch Enemy, which premiered at Beyond Fest last year, and Mike Nell's Blind Fire. Her recent Instagram posts include a video of her riding horseback in New Mexico on a day off from production and a photo of the film's cast and crew alongside a message of IATSE solidarity. Um, so yeah, that's um, that's the unfortunate news story. And I'm not sure if you're aware, but that same union, they were on the verge of striking um, because there were some issues with their contract, but the strike was called off recently, like within the last week. So not really sure if that had something to do with why um, apparently some of these prop people were not a member of that union. I don't know if they were some, a part of some other union perhaps, or if they were just straight up, you know, at will employees, but just really sad and tragic instance. Um, so Jasmine, you're, I mean, you're probably aware of this. I think a lot of articles mentioned it in the nineties, uh, the movie, the crow. Yeah. Yeah. Basically the same thing happened, uh, but in that scenario, the star of the movie died and um, Brandon Lee, Bruce Lee's son, um, a real like, like, like it's like, it's like one of those like cinema history, like moments that's like really chilling. Um, and like the nature of the film itself, like what it's about, like adds that layer to, to it. Um, and it's, it's just like, how does something like this happen? Like, and how does it happen again? Like ever? <laughs> You know, yeah. are, are you saying the nature of the film, The Crow? Yeah, I mean, it's that one's about like death. And I think I, it's been a long time since I've seen it. But I think the character comes back to life. Um, but that's just a side note in my mind, actually. I mean, like the actual. No, no, because this movie is about um, Alec Baldwin's grandson accidentally killing someone and then <gasps> being on the run. So I wasn't sure if you meant this movie. Oh, or I the didn't Crow. know that. Wow, that's they both. Yeah, it's, it's very a, yeah. sad and spooky. Like, I don't. Yeah. And like you're saying, it's like, how the hell does this happen? And like, I follow a lot of movie people on Twitter and many of them are saying like, there's so much that you can do in post-production where you do not need to have like being like super, Mm -hmm. I guess, anal about like, oh, we got to have like a real something that looks as real as possible. It's like, you can just fake that shit. Like, but, but how, like, how did, why was there a live round period? You know, you know it's, like yeah. I, mm-hmm. you wonder, like why wasn't that checked, right? Like, wh- right. how on earth do you not double check something like that? I was just gonna say, you wonder, like, where the negligence lies, right? Is this within the persons who uh, put together the set for production? Is this, you know, 
who che- who checks this? Is there a layer of protection for people who work in production? Because a lot of times production work is that grunt work. And you kind of just like do, you know, whatever you can. You got to be there crazy hours and you just do. But, you know, I could see people just kind of like not taking their job as serious because they, you know, they're the background. They're not the foreground. So maybe the negligence is there. We don't know. But it's it's really sad when, you know, obviously this was an accident, but like accidents like this shouldn't happen in those in those places. It's really I'm waiting to see what comes out as far as um who the workers were cuz it's obviously clearly it was a it was an accident like I don't think any of this was intentional even though as soon as I saw Alec Baldwin's name like we all know he has anger issues so that kind of made me go oh damn but mm-hmm. even you know to be fair to him I just think it was honest to God like just a terrible mistake and they did not know that something like this would happen but I'm curious to see like especially since I had been hearing about this pending strike like it was going to be the first time in how many years 128 years that they were going to strike based on like pay and working conditions so I, I'm curious if it was something where like they were hiring people that were not part of the union that maybe don't have the same standards mm. for checking things or, you know, regulation. Part. Cause that happens all the time, honestly, like as a union person where corners get cut or it's like, ah, oh, like anybody can do that or it's, yeah, how hard can it be? And it's like, there's mm-hmm. it, people get annoyed at a lot of union rules, but they're there for a reason. Mm-hmm. You know, like maybe it seems like overkill to you, but there's a reason why you got to do things X, Y, Z way or have a certain type of person doing certain types of jobs. Because uh, I don't know if somebody could have not known the difference between one thing and another mm-hmm. thing when they went to go get it or, you know, they're not as experienced. And then this is what happens. And you brought up Alec Baldwin and I know it's, you know, it's hard to feel bad for a rich, famous celebrity, but the the trauma of accidentally killing someone, I, that's, I mean, I can't imagine that how that would not live with him for like the rest of his life. Right. Like, yeah, they said he was crying. Like there were yeah. other articles saying that, you know, pictures of him in tears. Cause I'm sure it was just a freak thing. Yeah. Like, yeah, you know? Yeah. And like, how does like, how do two people, I, and my, I'm, my question, and this is just like physics, like how did, how did one person die and another person get injured yes I was Was it one bullet well more than I think from what I'm reading it's saying the woman who died Helena Hutchins it was a live round so maybe it was like one real one and the others were blanks or something I don't know Mm. but it's possible Mm. one was like a bullet bullet and then there were other things that were not like fatal or something or they were blanks because you can still get hurt with like a rubber bullet or like a blank can still hurt you in some kind of a way but and I guess we'll find out more as they investigate further but yeah it's like what the fuck man and it's I saw so many people like doing tributes to Helena Hutchison's work and it's just such a shame because not a lot of women get to that level in that industry and she seemed really excited to be working on this movie it's just you know just a horrible horrible tragedy absolutely wow well, I guess we'll have to watch as the story goes along. I mean, you know, it's it's one of those things where you really just don't know how to feel, but sad for the people involved and, you know, what even will happen with the rest of that um, film. We don't even know. 
So, yes. So thank you so much for that story, Jasmine. Um, Definitely something for us to keep a lookout on and um, prayers up for the families of those who were lost in this tragedy. And also like the people who were involved, you know, I know they feel terrible as well. So I hope that they're surrounded by love as, you know, in addition. Right. Especially as we try to figure out the rest of the details of the story. All right, y'all, let's take a breath. We're going to go ahead and play our second track of the day. (laughs) The song is called What a Day, and it's by an artist called Kiefer. We'll be right back. can follow our social media accounts. We have an Instagram account and we also have a Facebook account. Our Facebook page can be found at facebook.com forward slash objection radio free BK. No spaces, no punctuation. Our Instagram account is at objection to the rule. Again, no spaces, no punctuation marks. Thanks, and here's Teresa. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. And we will go ahead and jump right into our international news segment for today. So this um, story comes from two articles, one on thehill.com by Rachel Scully, 
titled Britain Checking Gun License Applicants Social Media Medical Records. And the second one is from the Washington Post by Rachel Panett. And the title of that article is Scared by Mass Shooting Britain to Check Social Media Medical Records of Gun License Applicants. Starting November 1st, people seeking a gun license in the UK must agree to share their confidential information with authorities. London is requiring British police to check medical records and in some cases delve into applicants' social media history before issuing gun licenses. The new statutory guidance comes after 22-year-old Jake Davison killed five people, including his mother and a three-year-old girl in a shooting rampage in the southwestern city of Plymouth in August before taking his own life. Davidson had previously posted YouTube videos filled with despair and self-loathing ahead of the rampage and reportedly showed interest in the involuntary celibate, which is also known as incel. This is a primarily white male supremacist subculture group that has been linked to a number of violent acts around the world. Britain has one of the lowest gun homicide rates in the world and in some of the strictest gun laws, including comprehensive background checks. But the August 12th attack raised questions about whether those checks are sufficient. Davidson had his, had his previously confiscated gun and firearms license returned to him just weeks before the mass slings, after he participated in an initiative that aims to keep offenders out of the criminal justice system. People hoping to get a gun license must agree to share their confidential information with authorities. They will also be required to submit a form signed off by a physician as part of an application process. Doctors will have to pass on any health concerns when the license is up for renewal, as well as alert police of potential signs that an applicant may pose a security threat. While British doctors have previously resisted providing confidential information to officials because it might discourage patients from seeking help, the new requirements were agreed upon during discussions between physicians, lawmakers, and law enforcement. Jasmine. Under the new guidance, officers should conduct background checks if they need more evidence of any individual stability. This includes officers interviewing members of shooting clubs, probation services, and domestic violence agencies, as well as examining the applicant's financial records and social media posts. So that is the story. Um, my first reaction to this was, duh. I mean, they should have been doing this, um, and we should be doing this. I think you know, people have not really included social media uh, formally into public information like they should. I mean, we all are on social media like constantly throughout the day. And with all of these different, you know, infractions with Facebook and everything else that's been happening lately, to me, this seems like, you know, this is not rocket science. You can see that there are disturbed people all over the world who are not afraid to talk about their intentions on hurting other people. So the fact that they are actually bringing this into the process, a little late in the game again, but definitely something to be considered specifically here as well, uh, which, you know, the U.S. has one of the largest um, um, number of these violent crimes that happen of mass shootings. It's one of the largest numbers um, in the, across the world for mass shootings in this country. Yeah, when you said Britain, I was surprised because the first thing I think of when I think of England or one of the, well, it's maybe not the first thing, but one of the many things I think of is that guns are nowhere near as ubiquitous there as they are here. So, it, you know, whenever I hear about some kind of a shooting thing happening there, I'm always taken aback. Like, how did that even happen? 
Yeah, historically, um, they haven't really had a large number of these mass scale homicides. But, you know, I think it's interesting to note that it's only been two months since this happened and they're already taking action to do something to create change. Uh, yeah, I agree. I think, you know, employers, people, people know their employers are looking at their social media, right? Which I guess private sector, the public sector is always lagging behind private sector. Um, but yeah, I agree. It's, it's a no brainer. Um, I also think it should be like literally one of the hardest things to do on the planet. <laughs> buying a gun. I think, um, you should have to, you know, pass a multitude of tests and prove that you know how to use one safely. And I think it should be way more, more difficult, um, everywhere. Um, but of course, especially in the U S where it's like easier to do that than like get an abortion, um, in, in a lot of places, um, way easier. Um, it's easier to do that than to get like Sudafed. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's exactly. ridiculous. Like yeah. you think I'm joking. No. I'm very serious. It's like, you have this video. I don't know if it was Dylan Roof or who it was, but you oh. just see them just walk right in, or you can go to these gun shows. Well, this is in the U.S. I don't know if they have gun shows in the U.K. in the same way, but it's like people will. It's just so easy in the U.S. I don't. It's so. I'm glad also that they're taking action so quickly in the U.K. But mm-hmm. yeah, when I you mean- mentioned, go ahead. Sorry. I was going to say that Europe has like a history of taking swift action when guns i mean i guess other countries because i think i actually am thinking specifically of australia because i think they had yeah. a mass shooting and then totally like restructured their you know citizens ability to access guns and the u.s i mean we've talked about it like if San, if um sandy hook didn't change anything like nothing will right like <laughs> in the yeah. u.s but and it's also I definitely am in agreement with restricting people's ability to get access to guns. But the scary thing for me is, you know, if you have it in your mind and in your heart that you're intent on hurting people, you will find a way. And especially if you're tapped into some kind of community of people that encourage that, like these incels and stuff. Yeah. Like they get on forums and things where they hype each other up or like they'll help each other out. And it wouldn't surprise me if it's like once you make these rules, it can be very easy to be like, okay, well, I'm just not going to post on X, Y, and Z forums or like someone can get the gun for you because they support your idea that you're going to go out and kill women. You know, like it's really. uh, Yeah. That's the harder thing to fix is like the root cause of that. Right. Yeah. I, and I, I agree. I mean, and I also, I like, if someone wants to hurt other people, they'll find a way like, right. Um, a couple weeks ago, I think in Oslo, Norway, yeah, the a guy bow used and arrow. a bow and arrow. Yeah. And so killed a few freaky. people. It's super freaky. I think. Yeah. So like, I think I, for me, I'm a high anxiety person at a certain point. I've, I have to just live my life, which is, you know, therapy has been helpful in getting me to that point and knowing that there's just being alive is sort of dangerous. Um, but with guns, like, and especially automatic weapons in the U S it's like, you know, if someone wants to hurt other people, the damage they can do and the speed with which they can right. do it. It's like in so seconds, they can kill so many, so people. much worse, right? Like Las Vegas, um, in 2015, I don't remember, but yeah, like it's, it's bad. It's way, it's way worse. And I think a big thing to note here in this story, something that stood out for me was that, 
you know, first thing was like, oh, this is great. They're putting these new stipulations in. How do you catch all the people that's already got these shits, right? Like we have to figure it out. So the clause about if you go for renewal, when you go for licensing, you have to resubmit some documentation to prove that you are now capable of having this firearm without harming people is a good clause because it kind of, you know, everybody has to go through that. Now, how, you know, uh, how accurate the databases are is one of the uh, challenges. I read in another article about this, about the databases not being accurate, especially after COVID, you know, uh, uh, a lot of systems just have not updated information and people have been given extensions on lots of things just because of that. But at least there is a process being implemented. And I hope that You know, one of the things about U.S., it's just too many fucking cooks in the kitchen when it comes to this issue. Like, this is about safety of humanity. This is not about your personal right, I guess, to me anyway, to, you know, trick the system or whatever you want to think it is. There's so many sides to this argument. But at the end of the day, if we actually want to save people, children or anyone else from being harmed by automatic weapons, we at least need to come to some sort of consensus that. It's not a non-issue. It's a real issue. And I think that we need to make sure that, you know, we're bringing this to the forefront with all the different states and regulations changing. I think that's why we haven't had any unity on this topic here. I think it's also because compared to here, like, I think in the U.S. context, the horse has left the stable so many years ago. And like, there's so many already, whereas in a place like the U.K., because they have a history of there's just not the same gun culture or the same number of firearms that are already out there, period. I feel like this type of thing is probably, there's probably a lot more hope that it's going to actually stop a lot of things. Whereas with here, it it seems like we should, anything is better than what we have now, honestly, but I, I feel like it would take a long time for us to catch up to like really see a big dip just because it's already been so common for them to be, you know, in on the market, in the black market, like, I think it would take a lot longer for us to see the same result. But hopefully for them, like this will have a more immediate limiting effect. And and in my opinion, too, I think, I think, in our country, it's it's all about money. And it's a lot of people who care about money, like manipulating the public message that it's about personal freedom. Um, it's, uh, it's the gun lobbyists and, you know, the NRA and the gun manufacturers who are worried about their bottom line and are able to manipulate like the American psyche, which is obsessed with like, you know, this old West mentality and the right to bear arms and like, and to create a culture, um, where it's, you know, ignoring facts, which is like, you know, owning a gun, you're more likely to to hurt, shoot, you know, someone in your household by accident, like stuff like that, you know, to hurt yourself. Yeah. Yeah, it's really, I know there's that saying that's like the difference between an Englishman and an American is for an Englishman, a hundred miles is a long distance. And for an American, a hundred years is a long time. Cause like, Mm -hmm. we also like our country is also so massive where, you know, the culture around guns in one city can be completely different from like one coast to the other, or like one part of one state to another. Whereas England is like, I think can't all of Eng- the country of England fit into like California or something like, so there's also that to contend with, like just the wide diversity of beliefs and feelings and landscapes around guns. Like if you're in a place where hunting is a real thing versus where no one does it, like 
it's hard to get everybody on the same page for that reason as well. Yeah, definitely the agriculture industry um, was something that came up in a lot of the different articles that I read around this, the agriculture industry in um, Britain and, you know, their need for guns for whatever reasons. But um, the geographical location of Americans obviously definitely has uh, impact on people's experience and, you know, their fear or non-fear of firearms. So, um, but at least, you know, something's being done somewhere. Let's hope it actually impacts, um, you know, this violence and hopefully that it'll start to change the tide on that conversation. All right. So great segue. I guess we're in the positive realm. Emily, what you got for the good news for us today? All right. So this story comes from a uh, an October and October 11th New York Times article by Lisa Friedman titled More Than 30 Countries Join U.S. Pledge to Slash Methane Emissions. Uh, methane is the second largest driver of global warming after carbon dioxide emissions. Scientists say the promised cuts could help avert the worst consequences of climate change. The article explains, quote, the Biden administration on Monday announced that 32 countries had joined the United States in a pledge to reduce methane emissions, part of an effort to set new targets to slow global warming before a major United Nations climate summit in Glasgow, in Glasgow next month. Methane is the second most prevalent greenhouse gas after, dar- after carbon dioxide, but much more potent in the short term in its ability to heat the planet. It is the main component of natural gas and is also released into the atmosphere from landfills, livestock, and thawing permafrost. The pledge, developed with the European Union, commits nations to cut emissions from methane 30% by 2030. While the four heaviest emitters of methane, China, India, Russia, and Brazil, have not joined the pledge, the administration announced that nine of the world's top 20 methane polluters had signed on. In addition to the United Nations, sorry, In addition to the United States and the European Union, they are Canada, Indonesia, Pakistan, Mexico, Nigeria, Argentina, and Iraq. Uh, Quote, John Kerry, Mr. Biden's climate envoy, said on Monday that scientists had found that methane emissions accounted for about half of that temperature rise. He called cutting methane the single fastest strategy that we have to keep a safer 1.5 degree centigrade future within reach. Uh, The administration estimated that if nations succeed, they will shave 0.2 degrees Celsius of warming from the atmosphere by 2050. Uh, Methane has a relatively short lifetime compared to with carbon dioxide, which lingers in the atmosphere for hundreds of years. But methane warms the atmosphere more than 80 times as much as carbon dioxide over a 20-year period. Cutting methane pollution is the fastest opportunity we have to help avert our most acute climate risks, including crop loss, wildfires, extreme weather, and rising sea levels, Fred Krupp, president of the Environmental Defense Fund, an environmental group, said in a statement. Inger Anderson, the head of the United Nations Environmental Program, said at the, ad, uh, said at the online meeting that cutting methane was not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It must complement efforts to cut carbon dioxide emissions, she said. The technology exists right now to cut 75% of global methane emissions from oil and gas operations by 2030, according to a report last week from the International Energy Agency. Uh, Finally, quote, the the Biden administration also announced Monday that 20 philanthropies had joined commitments of $223 million to support countries' plans for the methane pledge. Uh, So just a little good news for you. While our country can't get its shit together about carbon, uh, maybe we'll be able to do something about methane and 
you know, do a little back end so- solution in the short term. I don't know. We got to take those small wins, man. <laughs> no oh, matter yeah. how they come. Oh, yeah. Great. Thank you so much. Any good stories about climate control and the environmental um, issues are positive to me. So definitely good news. Thank you so much, Emily, for that story. And folks, we did it. We have come to the end of this week's episode of Objection to the Rule. Thank you so much for listening. You can catch all of our older episodes on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org or on the Radio Free Brooklyn app or on Spotify. Please continue to listen up for more independent Brooklyn media. Our final track of the day is called Lost Kingdoms and it's by Nubia Garcia. We will see you next week. Happy Sunday. Bye. Have a good week. Bye.
If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android, available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at radiofreebrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.